This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hello and welcome to today's edition of the programme. I hope your week has been wonderful and you're healthy and happy. Let's start today with motivation, both motivation for practice and, more immediately, motivation for engaging with the program today. Lewis Richmond speaks about motivation in a blog on the Huffington Post titled, Is Meditation Narcissistic? Lewis Richmond is a Buddhist writer and teacher and the author of a number of books including the best-selling Work as a Spiritual Practice. He was a student of the Zen master Shunri Suzuki Roshi and heads a Zen meditation group, Vimala Sangha, in Mill Valley, California. And this is what he writes. Is meditation narcissistic? The short answer is, it depends. The act of sitting in silence, eyes closed or facing a wall, attention focused on the inner landscape of breath, body and mental activity, could at least be characterized as self-absorbed. Some might call it navel-gazing. The term navel-gazing, which the dictionary defines as useless or excessive self-contemplation, was originally a concentration practice of Hindu yoga. Jack Engler, a psychotherapist and Buddhist teacher, has written extensively about the wrong use of meditation by psychologically unbalanced people. In the book Buddhism and Psychotherapy, he speaks of those who practice meditation in the service of defense rather than self-awareness. Engler's contributions are part of a growing literature about the many ways that the goal of true meditation can be subverted by those with a distorted motivation. Motivation indeed is the key. While right meditation is the eighth spoke in the wheel of the Eightfold Path, right motivation is the second. When Gautama, the Buddha-to-be, confronts Mara the tempter, he dismisses Mara by saying, you are not striving for the welfare of the world. In other words, Mara who could be seen as the narcissistic shadow of the Buddha, lacks correct motivation. Mara wants the fruits of spiritual practice to satisfy his own selfish needs for power, status, security or perfection. Perhaps today's Western practitioners leap a bit too quickly into the innermost of meditation without a thorough grounding in all the other spokes of the path, right view, right intention, and so on. These days, I am growing less fond of this prefix right, which is a legacy of 19th century scholarship. To my ear, right is a bit superior sounding and moralistic. I have come to prefer simply Buddhist, Buddhist view, Buddhist motivation, Buddhist action, Buddhist speech, Buddhist livelihood, Buddhist effort, Buddhist mindfulness, Buddhist meditation. There are other paths. This is the Buddhist one. Each of these eight spokes are important. Each supports the others and helps keep Mara-like self-absorption at bay. Emphasizing one at the expense of the others is not salutary. The Prince Siddhartha left the palace and took up the life of a monk not because he needed more adulation, wealth or influence, he already had those things, but because he wanted to clearly understand the causes of suffering and how to assuage it. In many places throughout the sutras, the Buddha says this, I teach suffering and the cause of suffering. 
In other words, Buddha strives for the welfare of the world. That is his work. This concern for the suffering of others is not an idea. It's a deeply emotional response. Siddhartha was upset by the suffering he saw, a powerful emotional reaction that changed his life. This is described often in Buddhist scriptures. The Velamakirti Sutra begins with the news that the Bodhisattva Velamakirti is sick. When the disciples of the Buddha go to visit him, Vimalakirti explains that he's sick because all sentient beings are sick. And in the Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, Shantideva says that while an ordinary person experiences the suffering of others like a grain of sand in the palm of the hand, for the Bodhisattva it is like a grain of sand in the eye. Suffering is painful. The Bodhisattva feels that pain on behalf of others. Meditation practice in this spirit and with this motivation is not at all narcissistic. In fact, it's narcissism's opposite. Neuroscientists are now looking at the brain scans of people with strong narcissistic tendencies and are seeing anomalies in the region of the frontal lobe having to do with emotional response. It is not clear yet how this might relate to Buddhist practice, but it supports Jack Engler's observations about people who practice meditation to armor themselves against feeling. Buddhist motivation is not some elementary or preparatory practice to be left behind once meditation begins. Cultivating Buddhist motivation is a lifelong endeavor because the tendency to slip into self-aggrandizement does not necessarily diminish as one's spiritual prowess grows. In fact, it can increase. In many meditation traditions, including my own school of Zen, Every period of meditation begins with the recitation of the four Bodhisattva vows and concludes with the dedication to the welfare of all beings. Buddhist meditation doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's not navel-gazing. It is deeply relational. The Eightfold Path was designed to be practiced as a seamless whole. Otherwise, things can go awry. Any single practice or effort can go off the rails. Mara's stratagems are indefatigable and ingenious. The ego constantly look for, looks for ways to bend the benefits of the practice back towards the self and its selfish needs. It helps to have other people, practice companions, good spiritual friends and teachers, to watch you and point out where you might be veering off. One contemporary Japanese Zen teacher, when asked by a student what was the most important principle of Zen practice, replied, Look under your own feet. We must ask, are we standing on solid ground or on quicksand? This question is the continuous life koan of every seeker of the truth and every aspirant for wisdom. So, now in the light of this, let's now think about our motivation for joining the program today. Are we just on a trip of self-aggrandizement or self-defense? Or are we actually here to make some use of our lives? Let's just face ourselves for half a moment to see. And if the motivation is not a real Buddhist one, can we change it? Let's see. Thank you. Now, linking up with what we've been doing in previous programs, those of you who have been with us before will know we are going through Nam Pal's mind training like the rays of the sun, which is a commentary on another text called Seven Points of Mind Training. 
We've reached the part of the text that discusses the five powers, first as they are explained in the context of the practice of a whole lifetime, and then in the context of dying. So we've covered the first, and now talking about how the power should be practiced at death time. In this context, Namkapal describes the five powers as the power of the white seed, the power of intention, the power of remorse, the power of prayer, and the power of familiarity. Now, if you were with us three weeks ago, do you still remember what Namkapal said about the power of the white seed? It went like this. We should purify the misdeeds which will call us, cause us suffering in the future by application of the four powers. At the time of death, be fearless and free from sorrow, thinking, it's all right for me to die. It is extremely important not to hold on to anything that will be a source of attachment, but to offer all your possessions to the higher and lower fields of merit. There are many examples of incidents such as that concerning the bhikshu, whose body burned thrice simultaneously due to his attachment to his arms bowl at the time of death. We should especially eliminate attachment to our bodies at the time of death. This is because the body has been the basis of the I, or misconceptions of the self, the root of all disturbing emotions, wherever we've been born in all six realms of existence. And being attached to the body, we have indulged in the ten unwholesome deeds the five unboundless actions and other deleterious behaviours in order to obtain food, clothing and other possessions to meet our own selfish ends. Consequently, we are submerged in the unending suffering of cyclic existence in general and the unbearable pains of inferior rebirths in particular. As the Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life says, whoever is attached to this body is frightened by even small things who would not despise as his enemy a body which gives rise to such fear. Wishing to find a means to relieve this body's hunger, thirst and sickness, you kill birds, fish and deer and loiter by the roadside to rob others. If for the sake of profit and comfort you will even kill your father and mother and misappropriate offerings to the three jewels, you will burn in the most severe hell. What wise man would desire, protect and coddle this body? Who would not scorn it and regard it as an enemy. So we should make a strong determination not to adopt such an inferior body, the product of actions and disturbing emotions, in the future, but to let the reality of the mind, its lack of inherent existence, rest in the perfect body of truth. So basically, he's saying we have to purify our negative karma by applying the four opponent powers, so that when going through the process of death, we have no attachment to anything at all and are quite ready to die. The thing most of us are attached to is our body. In fact, we are so entranced by it that it forms the basis for clinging on to an independent and truly existing I. Believing in this I and falling in love with it, so as to speak, we allow ourselves to do all sorts of negative actions like killing, stealing and so on, which will result in horrible future suffering. Therefore, Namkapal encourages us to do everything in our power to give up our lust for this kind of body and only use it to arrive at the state where we will never need to be born involuntarily into such a body again. Lama Zoparumshe, the spiritual director of the Foundation for the Preservation of the Mahayana Tradition, in a commentary of the five powers, has gone into the first, the power of the white seed, in some depth 
and we went through some of his teachings last time. Remember, he spoke about how through attachment we create all sorts of negative karma that will lead us to suffering in the future. We ended our last program with a few stories of what happened to beings that died with such a mind of attachment. There was the monk who was so attached to his begging bowl that he was born as a worm inside it when he died. And he became angry and through that went to hell in his next rebirth. Then there was someone else who died attached to some gold and hidden underground. He was born as a snake on the gold. Another woman was very attached to her body, so when she died, she was very quickly born as a worm that lived in the corpse. Now imagine being so attached to your body that very soon after death you are born as a maggot in what used to be your body. You will literally be consuming the object of your attachment. Lama Zopa also spoke about a frog that spent most of its time clutching some money. This frog had been a monk very attached to money in its previous life. Lama Zopa has one or two other stories that illustrate the point. He says, The great enlightened being Pabonka Denchen Yingpo told the story of one old monk from Amdo who was attached to fatty foods and was having a hard time dying. Even though he knew the meditation techniques and the tantric method of transference of consciousness, he was finding it extremely difficult and was unable to transfer his consciousness to the pure land of Buddha. A great lama from Amdo called Gungtang Jampal Yang saw that this monk was having a hard time to die or transfer his consciousness. So the lama used his skillful means and said, Make a wish to go to Tushita Pure Land. The fatty food there will be even better than the food we get during the holy festivals in the seventh month of each year. The monk immediately breathed his last breath. Lama Zopa continues, There's some risk of these difficulties happening to us, so it is urgent and an emergency that we renounce attachment. If we don't practice letting go of attachment, desire and so forth now, then when the time of death comes, similar things as those explained in these stories can happen to us. One day, Shariputra, Buddha's heart disciple who was excellent in wisdom, went for alms in the town. He went to a house where the old father was used to eating fish from the pool behind his house. The father had died and was reborn as a fish in the pool. The mother was attached to the house, so she was reborn as the man's dog. The man's enemy had been killed for raping the man's wife. Because the enemy was so attached to her, he was reborn as her son. The son therefore caught his father the fish and killed it. While he ate its meat, the dog, his mother, ate the fish bones and so was beaten by her son. His own little son, his former enemy, was sitting on his knee. Shariputra looked through the door of the house of this family and expressed, He eats his father's flesh and beats his mother. The enemy he killed sits on his knee. A wife gnaws her husband's bones. I laugh at the existence of samsara. This story, says Lama Zoparumche, shows that even clinging to one's own home has shortcomings. This kind of thing can happen to us if we don't let go. Lama Zopa then talks about what happens if we die with negativity in our mind. He says, if we die with negative thoughts, and certainly if we die with anger, attachment or ignorance, there is no question that we will be reborn in the lower realms. In the hells, hungry goes to animals. Not only that, 
But these negative minds make the actual time of death so painful and they make it very difficult for the consciousness to leave the body because there's so much fear, anger and attachment clinging to possessions, family members, friends and home. Because of not wanting to be separated from these things, you can't let go. You don't want to die. And you can see from this how attachment creates so much fear and worry. It tortures you and makes you suffer so much. Attachment doesn't give you the freedom to be born in a pure land of Buddha, such as Amitabha's pure land. Once you are born in Amitabha Buddha's pure land, you will never ever be reborn in the lower realms. It's impossible. Once you are born there, you are free forever from the lower realms. And if you are able to be born in Haruka and Vajragini's pure land, Taprakacho, you will definitely achieve enlightenment in that very life. That is a very quick way to achieve enlightenment if you are unable to be enlightened in this life and this human body. The negative clinging mind of attachment doesn't give you any freedom. You are like a bird whose legs are fastened to a stone by rope, tied down and unable to fly. Just like that, you have no freedom. Being unable to die with a virtuous thought, such as non-ignorance, non-anger or non-attachment, you cannot receive even a perfect human rebirth with the eight ripened aspects in your next life. This kind of rebirth was highly emphasized by Lama Tsongkhapa. If you can achieve a human body with the eight ripened qualities, you can be very successful in achieving realizations and can proceed on the path to liberation and full enlightenment. There can be great success in actualizing the path. Also, if you die with the non-virtuous thoughts of anger, attachment and ignorance, you cannot achieve a human body that has every opportunity to practice Dharma, such as living by the four Mahayana Dharma wheels. The first of these four is abiding in a harmonious place. This means being born and living in a country or place where the Buddha Dharma is existing in the form of the Mahayana teachings and particularly as Tantra, the secret mantra yet Vajrayana teachings. It also means being born in a perfect family who are fully devoted to the Buddha Dharma and Sangha and who want to support your Dharma practice. And it means living in a place that doesn't cause health problems and where there are no obstacles to practice. The other three are meeting a perfect virtuous friend and being able to collect merits and make prayers. If you die with non-virtuous thoughts, you cannot even achieve a perfect human body with the seven qualities of the high realms, that of the happy transmigratory beings. Now the seven he's talking about here are having a good family lineage, attractive physical features, a long life, good health, good fortune, wealth and good wisdom. Lamazopa continues, Not only that, but you cannot even achieve an ordinary devil or human rebirth besides not meeting with the Dharma. Clinging to the body causes endless and unimaginable suffering. So you should reflect on this and be able to let go. Make your mind strong and have the courage to let go. It says in the great saint, the Bodhisattva Shantideva's teaching, Guide to the Bodhisattva Way of Life, being attached to one's own body, even things that cause little fear give rise to great fear. So who would not have an aversion to that body which causes fear as one would to an enemy? This means that self-cherishing is the cause of all fear. Since this is true, if you don't exchange yourself for others but are attached to your own body, 
then even small dangerous things like snakes, scorpions and so forth, which should cause little fear, give rise to great fear because of attachment to the body. So why would any wise person not have hatred to this body as to an enemy instead of cherishing it? He then quotes the verse in Shantideva that Namkar Pal includes in his commentary and that we read earlier on in the program and says that all these great negative deeds come about through self-cherishing. He goes on, It is because of having a body and being attached to physical pleasures that people engage in all forms of sexual misconduct and why those who are ordained break their root vows. Because of attachment to physical pleasure, people steal other possessions, kill, tell lies, commit slander, use harsh speech, and so forth. Attachment to the body gives rise to the negative karma of covetousness, wanting to use another person's body for your own physical comfort and pleasure. When somebody harms your physical comfort, it can cause ill will and even heresy to arise due to attachment to the body. One might even give up the guru, the root of the path to enlightenment, because the mind is so attached to one's own physical needs and sensual pleasure. Attachment to the body is what causes people to engage in the negative karma of drinking alcohol, which creates the karma to be born in the heaviest hot hells and the great hells, experiencing suffering for billions and billions of years. It also gives rise to the suffering that comes from engaging in the negative karma of beating others and being beaten by others. All of this is because of having a body. We also waste an unbelievable amount of money due to attachment to the body. There are so many things used with attachment for the body and this makes the biggest bill in our life. It also makes us waste this precious human life because so much time is spent taking care of the body. So much of this precious human life, so much precious time, is totally wasted with attachment, working to obtain everything that is needed for this body. So, reflect on this body, on what it really is. Just a skeleton plastered over with different bits of flesh and muscle. Inside there are the organs, veins, blood and other fluids. A layer of skin covers it, and it is adorned by hair, nails and teeth. In their natural state, none of these things is attractive. The body is filled with filthy and smelly substances, and what comes out of the body is also unappealing. Why be so attached to this body and suffer so much? Think about this, and then come to the conclusion, I will never again take this bad body, which brings me so much harm. After this life, I will never again take on a suffering body created by karma and delusion. I am going to place this mind, which has no nature, on the ultimate nature of the mind, which has no true existence, in the state of Dharmakaya. Ken Rinpoche Geshe Tupton Chunyi, resident teacher of the Amitabha Buddhist Sense of Singapore, also points out how foolish we are to be attached to the body. But he points out but that doesn't mean we should not look after the body. On www.lamayeshi.com he teaches, The Buddha said that the body is, by nature, unclean and arises from impure causes. Our bodies are appropriated, contaminated physical aggregates which have to experience the sufferings of old age and death. At the very end, they only become food for vultures and worms. We foolishly see our bodies as pleasant, as objects of attachment, 
and we accumulate so much negative karma in order to sustain them, using them for meaningless activities. But when the time of death comes, the Lord of death will take them away from us against our wishes. When the great practitioners examine the body, they see no reason to be attached to it. How should we sustain our bodies then? Remember the analogies of giving the servants wages when the servants work, or seeing the body as a boat for coming and going. We should sustain our body with a motivation of using them to engage in virtue. Guntang Rinpoche says the same thing in his collection of advice. He described the body as like an autumn flower which deteriorates a little with each passing day. Therefore, there's no point in being attached to it, and it is a mistake to sustain it out of attachment, as we will only accumulate heavy negative karma by doing so. No one is saying that we should not take care of or sustain our bodies, but we should not do so out of attachment. We need to sustain the body, and we should know how to sustain the body. We should ensure that our bodies become supporting conditions for us to engage in virtue. That is how we should care for our bodies. An example of our attachment to unclean phenomena is sexual desire. Our strong desire for the bodies of others is due to our erroneous conception grasping at them as clean, when in reality they are unclean. Once we understand the filthy nature of the body, there is no basis for the arising of attachment. The Buddha mentions in the sutras that our bodies are filth-making machines. We know this is true when we analyze this further. Our whole body is filled with so many unclean, unpleasant substances that it seems to be no more than a filth-producing factory. Yet, we have strong attachment to our own bodies. We need to meditate on this, and when done well, it can definitely reduce our attachment to our bodies. The sutras mention that the childish, grasping at unclean things to be clean, will even eat snot and pus, just like maggots who consume pus produced by the body due to their attachment. The sutras also mention that when we leave our bodies alone, if we didn't wash our bodies, they would stink. Yet, we remain attached to our bodies as bees to honey. One of the commentaries says that it is one of the greatest signs of our confusion and ignorance that we are attached to the bodies of others. This attachment is like someone taking refuge at the foot of a tree at night. In the darkness, he cannot see that the tree is surrounded by piles of dirty things, and he may even sleep on top of this filth. At sunrise, when he can see clearly what he has slept on, he will be disgusted at the sight. In the same way, when we reflect and meditate on and realize the unclean nature of our bodies and the bodies of others, we will also be repelled and disgusted. Our attachment will then be reduced. Gumtan Rinpoche reminds us that our bodies are like hotel rooms which we stay in for a limited period of time. Yet, for the sake of this borrowed body, we do many things to protect, improve and make it happy. At the end of the day, what does this I, the guest of this hotel room that we cherish so much, get in return? How much real happiness has this guest experienced? What about the sufferings and the problems encountered by this I? We need to think about this. And with that, we have run out of time and must finish. Thanks for joining the program today, and please tune in again next week. As we go, please dedicate all our positive potential for participating in the program today, 
to gaining enlightenment for the benefit of all living beings. Thank you, have a wonderful week, and goodbye. For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices, or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio, or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.